If I uh, stood up in front of you this time last year and said, Liverpool are going to win the Champions League final this time next year, would you believe me? And if I, if I said they had to be the best team in the world, Barcelona, 4-0 in order to get to the finals, would you believe me? Well, they did. John Greenway to the week off. He's a Tottenham fan, you see. I'm sorry if you're not a football fan and you don't know what I'm talking about. I'll probably figure what. I'll talk about politics instead. Does anyone ever get home from a long day at work or looking after the kids or at uni doing study and all of that kind of stuff? Do you ever get home from a long day, put your, sit down, put your feet up and just think, all I want to do now is listen to about four hours of Brexit debate? <laughs> you don't do it. Oh, some people do. Some people do. You don't. We don't tend to want to do that, do we? But actually, three years ago, it's almost three years ago since we took that vote, who would have thought when you were placing that, that vote that still today the, the outcome wouldn't be known? That still today there'd be so much division and argument, arguments and all of that stuff about it. You see, we, we, we know that there's a kind of desired uh, place to get to. Liverpool wanted to win that league. But the actual way of getting there has been a lot trickier than they would ever know. And the same with Brexit. Whatever side of the fence you're on, there's a desired outcome that you're looking for. But actually, the way to get there has been far harder, far tougher than anyone would have predicted. And today, we're looking at, at, at a story where we see that Jesus had a goal. He had an aim. And that was good, and the disciples were starting to understand what Jesus' goal was. But what they didn't understand is how tough that journey was going to be to get there. So that's what we're going to look at. But I've got some interesting news for you. I've been doing a lot of philosophy this week. I've been writing my final essays for this year. And so I need to give you a bit of philosophy today. I want to, I want to tell you about a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche. I think it's Nietzsche. I think that's how you say it. Um, he lived about 150 years ago, and he believed that science, Darwinism, the theory of evolution had removed the need for humans to believe in God. We can explain how we came to exist, therefore we don't need God anymore. The problem for Nietzsche was that when he looked around the world and he saw that most uh, cultures in both the East and the West revolved around belief in God. And actually, most cultures got their sense of uh, meaning and purpose and religion, uh, kind of the, the way of doing things from their gods. And he saw that if we don't need God anymore, then the need for religion also goes. So much of our understanding of what is right and wrong, good and evil, just to say, I don't, I don't agree with Nietzsche, just to let you know. <laughs> so much of what our understanding of right and wrong, evil and good, comes from our belief in God. The need to care for the weak and the vulnerable. The need to live in harmony as much as possible with others. Uh, ideas like, don't murder. <laughs> Love your enemies. 
value, the value of forgiveness. All of these ideas are, are woven into the fabric of our societies and they come out of an understanding of who God is. So for Nietzsche, if we don't need to believe in God anymore, it's not just a case of saying, I'm not going to church anymore. We need to completely re-understand what our purpose and meaning are because they're not coming from God anymore. And we need to understand uh, where, what truth is and what right and wrong is because they don't come from our Old Testament anymore. Or they don't come from Jesus anymore. So he had a big problem and he felt that we needed to rebuild our understanding of truth based on science and find our meaning from our inner self. Exploring who our greatest version of ourself is. He believed that hum- humanity had been kind of semi-enlightened in that thinking people supposedly don't need God anymore. But he, he thought that the implications of this we had not understood. And they were far more reaching than we would expect. That's enough of Nietzsche for now, but I'll bring him in later on. This week we're going to take a look at three uh, back-to-back stories uh, back-to-back passages in the, in the book of Mark, chapter 8. Um, but there's a theme running through them all. And the theme is revelation, or getting a clearer vision of who Jesus is. So in, in the New Testament, there are times where Jesus just goes around and Mark just says, he healed many people. Lots of people are healed at, just at the name of Jesus. But then there's also at times where Jesus is remarkably intentional about who he heals and why he heals them. Often a particular kind of healing opens up a whole swathe of conversation in the story of Mark and that happens in our story today. So in Mark 8, 22, uh, at 8, uh, 22 Jesus uh, and his disciples find themselves in a place called Bethsaida. And while they're there, some people bring a blind man to Jesus. And Jesus takes, and, and, and they ask him to heal him. And uh, Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and walks him out of the village. And sometimes I wonder, what was Jesus talking to when, when he was talking to the blind man as he was leading him out? I wonder what they were chatting about. I wonder what conversations went on. But off they go. And eventually, Jesus stops, and then, spitting in the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus asks someone, in the middle of being healed, what's going on? It's an interesting question to ask. The man looked around him and said, Yes, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like men walking around the trees walking around. And this is the only time where a person is not completely healed when Jesus uh, heals, when Jesus is healing. That's an interesting thing to think about. So then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again and his eyes are opened and his sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. So the question, my first two questions are why did Jesus ask if the blind man could see And why did Jesus uh, take two attempts to heal him? And as we look at the next two passages that we're going to look at today, we're going to see that Jesus is, is doing two things at once. He's bringing physical healing 
but there's also a spiritual dimension to this story as well. Physically, he's showing compassion and care for this blind man. He leads them out. They have conversations, I imagine. He cares about this blind man's needs, and he meets this blind man's needs. But then there's a spiritual dimension in that Jesus is demonstrating something to the disciples. It's almost like a parable. Jesus has said, look, this man has been blessed with partial vision. He can see people, but they look like trees wandering around. And then Jesus completely restores his sight. And in the same way, the disciples have partially understood who Jesus is. But yet, it's it's to become fully clear. It says in uh, in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? And the disciples said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, and still others say one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked them a more direct question, a more interesting question. But who do you say I am? And and, and that's an interesting question for this reason. One, the disciples had been around Jesus and had seen him. Everyone else was seeing Jesus from a distance and seeing what he's doing and thinking, well, that reminds me of John the Baptist, or that reminds me of Elijah. Whereas the disciples had been with Jesus, had seen him, had watched him, had learned from him. Who did they think he was? It's interesting for another reason, and that's because the disciples had been asking themselves who Jesus was. In chapter uh, 4, Jesus calms the storm. Do you remember that story? A raging storm. The disciples think they're going to die. Jesus gets woken up and, and, and he has to go and calm the storm. And um, the disciples' question after Jesus had kind of backed away was, who is this man? That even the winds and the waves obey him. And at this moment, at that moment, the disciples didn't have an answer to that question. But suddenly, they do. Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you're the Messiah. You're God's anointed one. You're God's chosen king. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So the disciples had begun to start see, see who Jesus was. They had begun to get the significance of who he was. He was the Messiah, God's chosen king. And this is big news for the Jews because they had been waiting for their Messiah. In the same way that we wait for Christ's return, they're anticipating the coming of their Messiah. It's, um, it's they're waiting for their saviour. They're waiting for their liberator, the one who's going to come and rescue them and be their king. Now today, when we read our Old Testament... We look at it and we see lots of references and we think, that is clearly talking about Jesus. So, for example, in Isaiah um, 50, it says, um, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beards. I did not hide my face from their mocking or spitting because the Sovereign Lord helped me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. Or we read things like this. He says, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. By his wounds we are healed. 
And we look at those scriptures and we think that's clearly talking about Jesus. But the first century Palestinians weren't reading those bits and thinking about the Messiah. They were more looking at things like Isaiah 9 that says, He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and on his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will accompany it. Or this in Daniel, I love this. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming on a cloud of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into the presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His domination is an everlasting domination. It will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never, ever be destroyed. They're the kind of passages that the disciples thought of when they thought about their Messiah. Liberation from the Roman um, domination. Justice. Judgment. The kingdom of God coming in. God being established as the king and the people being saved and redeemed. That's what they're looking for. So when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, can you imagine how the disciples must have felt? How excited they must have felt? The Messiah's here, and we're one of his twelve. We're his group. We're the ones that he's gone to and said, I need your help. I need you to come and follow me. They're getting really excited. And Jesus warns them not to tell anyone, because you can tell this is going to cause some trouble. So well done, Peter. Well done, the disciples. You're beginning to understand the significance of who Jesus is. But it turns out that you're only half understanding then Jesus began to tell, tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. Have I moved on? Sorry. Many terrible things. And be rejected by the elders, the lead priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise again for the dead. This is the first time that Jesus is telling the disciples about some of the pain and some of the hardship that he's going to have to go through. As he, talk, as he talked about this openly with his disciples, disciples, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then he rebuked Peter. Go away from me, Satan. He said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. These words struck deep. Imagine Jesus saying those words to you, get behind me, Satan. You see, right at the beginning of this story, Jesus takes himself off to the wilderness, or that spirit leads him into the wilderness, where he's praying and fasting, and, and the devil comes and tempts him. And what does the devil say? He says, you can, Jesus, you can be the Messiah. You can tick all those boxes. You can have all the glory, all the fame, all the, all the nations of the world bowing down at your feet. And you don't have to go through the hardship, just bow down to me. That's all you have to do. But Jesus said, in, in no uncertain terms, get behind me, Satan, to the devil. And really, Peter is saying something similar. Jesus, you can be the Messiah. You can be the great one. We can have everyone bowing down to you and following you. The greatness is going to be amazing, but you don't need to do that hard stuff. You, you should stop talking like that. And Jesus' response is, Get behind me, Satan. You do not understand what's going on. You're seeing things from a merely human point of view. 
Jesus knew what he had come to do. He knew the end game, but he also understood that the process to getting there was going to be far tougher than anyone had expected. You know, so often we partially see what God is doing. And with our partial bit of understanding, we begin to tell him what he should be doing next. We've got to be careful of that. We start objecting. Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this to me. You shouldn't be doing this to them. Or you start complaining, this isn't fair. This isn't what I came in for. Or you start suggesting other ideas. Jesus, I think you could get your glory if you did this rather than that. Would that be helpful? Do you know, sometimes we just need to hear Jesus saying, you're seeing things from a merely human point of view. And we need to understand God's perspective. Sometimes it's good to hear the rebuke of God. Listen to this verse. It's challenging. It's challenging. Hebrews 12. God's discipline is always good for us. It's always good for us. Do you know, Jesus, God's never made a mistake when it comes to discipline. So that we might share in his holiness. No one... No discipline is enjoyable while it's, while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there's a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in it. And I think, you know, Jesus' command to get behind me, Satan, was actually, it seemed harsh. It seemed, whoa. But actually, you see what it did in Peter actually produced holiness in him. And you know, there will be times where you need to face that kind of sense of God speaking to you in those direct terms. He'll do it in lots of different ways. Sometimes it will be through his word. You're just reading his word. You've been having this attitude in your heart, this arrogance or this anger or this angst or whatever it is, uh, and and it's been going on in your heart, and you'll read something and it will penetrate you. Oh, I've done things. I've not been living this right. And you have to repent. You have to take that rebuke on. Sometimes, it, you know, uh, this, this week's study guide, brilliant. Where's Les Watkins? Les, you, are, you asked some brilliant questions. Uh, I like this. He, he said uh, on Tuesday, uh, you may be familiar with the phrase, junk in, junk out. I'm not, but there you go. <laughs> I, I wouldn't use that phrase very often. If I was, but <laughs> uh, take time to do a little self-examination and ask yourself, whether you have allowed things in your life which make your heart impure, what will you do about it? I just, that, that kind of stops you in the, in the tracks, doesn't it? What, what things in my heart have, have been making me impure? And what am I going to do about it? How am I going to get rid of that stuff? Or it might be that God uses others to rebuke you, to bring discipline, to bring challenge. And, and the thing is, whenever that happens, as, a, as it says in Hebrews, it's going to feel painful. So your automatic response will be defensive, anger. How dare you say that to me? You don't understand. You don't understand. But at least you know now it's going to be painful. But if it's good advice and if it's righteous what they're saying, actually it's going to serve you well in the future. So if someone does come and challenge you, maybe the answer isn't just to be defensive. Maybe sometimes if you're feeling defensive, you just say, let me think about it. And then go and think about it. And over time, you might actually see that those emotions have drained down and you can see the truth in it. And that will help you in the future. Amen? Amen. Right. Nietzsche believed that we had no need for God, but he also believed the implications were vast. 
he saw that if God was dead in our un- if God was dead in our understanding of what is good and evil, what is right and wrong and true, our understanding of meaning and of purpose in life was all based on a non-existent foundation. So in other words, if you don't believe in God, then a lot of your morality and your understanding of good and evil needs to be rethought. Scary thing. In contrast, Jesus tells us that we are in desperate need for God, but the implications of us. We need to accept that we are sinners, that we need a saviour, that Jesus needed to go all the way to the cross for our sins, he needed to die on the cross for our sins, and that he was raised to life again in order to defeat the power of death over our life. Jesus carried on by saying this. Then, calling the crowds to join his disciples, he said, If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your own cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. I just want to say sorry, actually. That joke, um, that, that thing I said about Les, I shouldn't have said that, so I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> Jesus had some pretty strong words to say to Peter and the disciples. But I believe he's also got some pretty strong words to say to us too. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good man? A great philosopher? It always baffled me. Nietzsche loved Jesus. I don't get it. I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. Is he just a great philosopher? Or is he the Messiah? The anointed one? The saviour of the world? And whatever your answer, have you understood the implications of your answer? If you believe Jesus was just a good man or a great philosopher, Nietzsche says you're building your life on shadows. You need to re-understand what is good, evil, right, wrong, purpose, and all of that kind of stuff. And I kind of get his logic. But if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the King, just think of what it means. Think of the joy, the peace, the future hope. When we're going through troubles, we've got something to look forward to and someone to be standing with. All this means that he is worth all that we have. It's worth staying faithful to him through the highs and through the lows. It's worth the cost and it's worth the sacrifice. Jesus said, if you truly hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world world, but lose your soul? Who do you say he is? I want us to stand up if that's alright. And um, I just want to respond. I'm going to pray in a minute, but um, a lady called Rebecca McLaurin has just written a a book. I've not got hold of it yet, but I've, I've read loads of quotes from it and it just looks brilliant. It's called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. 
And one of the quotes in it, I just I read it this week and I was like, man, this is just what we're talking about. So I want to read it kind of reflectively so you can close your eyes and just listen and then we'll pray. In Jesus' world, we find connective tissue between the truths of science and morality. We find a basis for saying that all human beings are created equal and a deep call to love across diversity. We find a name for evil and a means of forgiveness. We find a vision of love that is so much deeper than our current hearts can hold and a true intimacy better than our weak body bodies could ever experience. We find a diagnosis for human nature as shot through with sin and yet redeemable by grace. We find a call to care for the poor, the oppressed, the lonely, a call to spring from the a call springing from the heart of God himself and grounded in the hope that one day every tear will be wiped away, every stomach will be filled and every outcast will be embraced. But we do not find glib answers or an easy road. Instead, we find a call to come and die. Jesus, I Lord, I thank you for the revelation um, you gave the disciples that they could see that you were the Messiah, the one who came to liberate and bring hope, freedom, eternally. What an amazing thing. And actually that stretched far beyond, beyond the, the kind of realms that they could even express. And we look now and we think what it, looked, what, what it actually meant around the world. So many people come to know you, come into the kingdom of God. What an amazing thing. But Lord, the road is tough at the same time. The road's tough. And I pray, I pray that you would help us understand it, Lord. Lord, I pray for those that are suffering, that are finding, physically finding things tough. Lord, who are facing oppression. Lord, that are, are standing up for truth and finding themselves getting slapped down. I pray for people in other nations, Lord God, and or we think around the world, how people stay firm to the gospel and how it affects their lives and they have to literally, physically give up their life for your lordship and, and, and obedience. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you mature us like you matured those disciples? Would you help us to see, Lord, that this is not all victory now, it's now and not yet. There's this sense of we're going through it. We've got to pick up our cross and follow. And that's tough and we don't enjoy the idea of that. But Lord, we prefer that and be close to you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us by your spirit. I pray as we work out what this means in our families or in our workplace or at home or in friendship groups or in our communities. Lord, I pray that you would just you would just keep speaking to us. Where you need to rebuke us, rebuke us. Where we're getting it wrong, 
tell us. Lord, we'll, we'll, we'll be offended at first and then we'll understand what you're talking about. And so I pray that you would just speak to us, soften our hearts. Lord, I pray for connect groups to, to be a place of honesty and intimacy and, and striving to see one of, spur one another on. Lord, I thank you for the great examples that we see of it across the church. And I pray for continued blessing over them, Lord God. Lord, I just pray, Lord, I pray, be with us by your spirit. Help us to understand these things. I thank you, Lord, that everything you do for us is good. And it serves towards a hope now and an eternal hope. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.